Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark, and there's Charles W. Chuck Bryant, and there's Jerry over there, and this is Stuff You Should Know, the artsy edition. This is Jerry Roomtone Roland. Yeah, I think that's make-believe stuff. Room tone? Yeah, she might as well be like, let me capture a few fairies in this mason jar first. <laughs> I think it's the same thing. We may need those in the final edit. Uh-huh. <laughs> fairies. I don't know what it is about, to explain to everyone, room tone is uh, you do this on film sets and in studios where you just make everyone sit completely silently mm-hmm. while you capture the sound of the room. Mm-hmm. So I guess you can, what do you do with that, Jerry? Do you layer it in in case you need it or something? Did you hear that, everyone? She said she cleans <laughs> up the background. To, but, every, to everybody listening, it sounded like wah, 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 wah. <laughs> There's something in about it, though. It's like being in church and getting the giggles. Like uh-huh. It's really hard, especially on a film set when there's like 50 people standing around mm-hmm. being completely silent, I, no one farting. I suspect it's strictly a power trip. You think so? By the person calling for room tone. <laughs> That's what I think. I'm going to start doing that in my house when things get out of hand. Room tone! <laughs> right, exactly. See if that works. Don't make me bust out the room tone on you. Well, not, since we're none talking of that about, has to do with this. No, thing. no. We, I was going to say, since we're talking about room tone, obviously mm-hmm. the topic today is M.C. Escher, mm-hmm. who was well known for going berserk anytime someone <laughs> asked him to be quiet for room tone. He would trash chairs, mm-hmm. grab reptiles straight out of the two dimensions and throw them <laughs> into the third dimension, just do all sorts of weird stuff. That's funny. Did you think so? Mm-hmm. That was a joke just for you. Yeah, so he, uh, everyone knows M.C. Escher, if you've ever been to college. Or taking drugs. Or sold drugs to somebody in college. <laughs> yeah. Then you've probably seen hands, drawing hands, or, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, that's not what the name of that one was, but. It's called Drawing Hands. Oh, is it? Mm-hmm. Or uh, the some of his more famous ones are the these impossible rooms, mm-hmm. like stairs that lead to sideways stairs, but you got to wrap your head around it in a certain way to even make sense of it all. Right. Or stairs that lead into other stairs that lead back into the other stairs. It's sure. It's just constant. Or uh, I'm a big fan of that uh, one self-portrait he did in the— With the sphere? Yeah. The, the mirror sphere. Mirror like sphere. That. Yeah. It's cool. It is very cool. Um, I'm not crazy about the face, even though I'm sure he did it ex- exactly precise. Mm-hmm. But the hand, if you look at the hand— it's really realistic. It's very pretty. Yeah, I mean, I like this stuff. This is not my style as in anything I would put on my walls mm-hmm. these days. Mm-hmm. But I still think he's one of the, like, coolest, more innovative artists out there. Yeah. And there's a great factoid that I hope will hold till the end. Which Or one? not the end, but kind of where it falls in our so what non-outline. Is fact, what does factoid mean again? Does that mean you've killed 10% of all the facts? <laughs> That's right. And this is just one of the 10% remaining? That's right. Okay. Gotcha. <laughs> so um, one of the things, Chuck, about M.C. Escher that I found was that if you are impressed by his work, prepare to get exponentially more impressed as we talk about how he made those works, well, too. Well, that's the fact of the show, for me. Oh, okay. That's the fact toy you Yeah, well, you got to hold on to that. Oh, sure, sure, sure. Okay. Sure. I was just teasing <laughs> it a little bit. I didn't know that's what you are talking about, although I should have guessed. Yeah. So uh, this is us talking about an artist, which means that we should probably talk about that artist being born. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the case of M.C. Escher, whose name, by the way, was uh, Moritz uh, Cornelius. I want to say Cornelius, but there's no U in there. I think Cornelius. Sure. Escher. I nailed the last name. The That's last right. Name. 
But I, I misspoke on name. Oh, you didn't say I name. Said <laughs> I said I nailed the last nerm. This is the point where the people say get to the point already. Well, we are at that point. That's M.C. and then Escher, born mm-hmm. June 17th, mm-hmm. uh, 1898, not 1989, as uh, as the grabster put it. Yeah. I was like, man. He's like, here's some knew? numbers. <laughs> He was born in Leeuwarden, Netherlands, uh, grew up in uh, Arnhem, which is about 60 miles southeast of Amsterdam. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. I mapped all this stuff out. Nice. It's all in kind of that general area. You went on a little Google tour? Sure. Uh, and he signed, even from early on, uh, as MCE, he signed his paintings, although people called him Mock, M-A-U-K, friends and family. Right. Which doesn't mean anything, Ed points out, but it's just like, you know, an affectionate term for Moritz. Yeah. Is it Moritz? Probably Moritz. Moritz Cornelis Escher. But it could also go the way of Morris. So is it Moritz or Moritz? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, wish, I wish I knew. Well, what we do know is that, uh, and this we should put a pin in because it sort of plays a big part in how he pursued his art, but uh, his dad had some money. He was a rich kid. Yeah. For sure. Which really helps, as we'll see, as he's traipsing around Europe mm-hmm. on dad's dime. Slowly getting <laughs> yeah. better at art. Slowly. Yeah, that's a good point because he uh, was not great in school. He did love drawing class, but apparently wasn't, you know, he didn't have his second grade teachers falling over themselves about what a talented artist he was. No, and apparently he also didn't consider himself much of an artist, although he engaged in art, like he he did produce art Mm -hmm. from a very young age. He was terrible in school except at math and at drawing. Apparently when he was in grade school, primary school, he failed his finals, all of them except for math. And I read that his father noted in his journal with some affection that uh, his son consoled himself by producing a, a linotype of a sunflower. That's oh, really? how he made himself feel better after <laughs> after failing out of school. Well, and he, he was somewhat adept at math early on, but um, it's interesting. His, his work is highly mathematical as far as art goes. But later on in life, when he was confronted with real mathematicians, mm-hmm. he would sort of be like, no, not me, man. Like... I'm an artist. Well, so, I'm not that kind of mathematician. So I said, yes, but he was, f- most of his friends were mathematicians. Yeah. For most of his career, he was mostly appreciated by mathematicians and scientists. Those are the people who really vibed on his work. And drugs. That came later. <laughs> okay. That came later when he got real popular. Um, but I saw that somebody made a, a movie called uh, Journey into Infinity. Oh. It's a documentary, a full length documentary. I believe the whole thing's on YouTube. Um, and. It starts out, or the trailer starts out with Graham Nash saying, hey, I, I called up M.C. Escher one day just to say, Mr. Escher, I think you're a really great artist. That's all I wanted you to say. And he said, I don't consider myself an artist. I consider myself a mathematician. Oh, really? Yes. So I'm going with Graham Nash's interpretation. <laughs> that runs spoke, counter to this. Spoke to him directly, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy. He, uh, I mean, not to spoil anything, but he died. Uh, in 1972, mm-hmm. at just 73. So, mm-hmm. you know, if he would have lived to his like mid 80s, which is somewhat reasonable, mm-hmm. um, he he would have been like alive in the 80s, which just seems so weird. It does seem kind of weird, you know? Yeah, because he was he seems countercultural for sure. Even though his him his personality was not 
very countercultural. No. Um, and he didn't really have much love for hippies. In fact, he later said that the hippies in San Francisco are illegally making copies of my work. Right. Um, he he didn't exactly follow, you know, the the normal usual beat mm-hmm. throughout his lifetime. And he was he was he was a mathematician. He was a bit of a square, but he was also a very imaginative square. That's right. I was trying to make a square joke, but it's not coming to me. <laughs> Remember that show, Square Peg, Square Peg, Square, yeah. Square Pegs. Sarah Jessica Parker. Was she in that? Mm-hmm. She was also in Girls Just Want to Have Fun. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I, yeah. And I'm going to see her on Broadway next spring. Really? Yeah, she and uh, her husband are co-starring in uh, Plaza Suite, Neil Simon's Plaza Suite. Very nice. Very excited about that. I'll bet. Uh, I'm trying to align it with the Bonnie Prince Billy show, but they're like a week apart. And I'm like, I can't just stay in New York for a week. That's a lot of time to kill, (laughs) especially when there's hourly flights between Atlanta and New York. I know. I may just go see Bonnie Prince Billy and come home Mm -hmm. because he didn't play much. But that's a story for another day. (laughs) Uh, All right. So he goes to school at Technical College of Delft, um, not for very long. And then he went to the Harlem with two A's. School of Architecture and Decorative Arts, which is west of Amsterdam, mm-hmm. uh, not Harlem, New York. Well, I think that's what the Harlem, New York is named after, right? Yeah. That's where Bonnie Prince Billy's playing. <laughs> He's at Town Hall, actually. Oh, is that right? Yeah. We played there. That's right. We got our stank on that joint. <laughs> so uh, his dad said, you know, because, you know, his dad had a lot of money and made money. And even though you want to support your kids, you want the you want to try and edge them into something. Sure. If you're that kind of dude yeah. that, that might be lucrative. So he said, hey, you like to draw shapes. Why don't you go study architecture? And he did that for a little while, even though he wasn't super into it. But while at school there, he had a very fortunate meeting uh, by being mentored by one Samuel Jasurin de Mesquita. Mm-hmm. Who would be his mentor, who noticed some of his early art. I'm not sure how he saw it. But he took one look at Escher's art and said, you don't need to go into architecture. Come study under me and learn graphic design. And so Escher did. He became a graphic designer, which he, uh, whether he knew it or not, he had been his whole life up to that point. All of his work is very graphic in nature. And designy. Yeah, it really, really is. (laughs) But I'm sure his dad in the early, you know, 1920s was probably like, is that even a thing? Right. That sounds made up. Yeah. (laughs) But it, well, his dad also—I don't know if you said or not—was a civil engineer. So of course he would be like, "You draw, you just go do architecture." Right. That's what I know. Civil engineering, and there's architects in the world. Just go do the other thing that I, I don't do. And he probably thought graphic design just meant like you're going to make signs, right, or postage stamps or Christmas paper, which he did later on. That's right. That's how he made a little bit of dough. Mm-hmm. So uh, in the early 1920s, he started on his uh, sort of uh, rich kid journey. Traveling around Europe uh, on his dad's dime. On a gap year that was really, really long. (laughs) Very long. But on one of these trips, he went to a couple of places that would end up having a big influence on him. Yeah. Uh, One in Spain at the Alhambra, uh, and then just traveling through southern Italy, through the countryside. Yeah, he just fell in love with Italy. Yeah, but in Spain, this this is one that didn't bear fruit right away, but he was really fascinated by these mosaics and uh, tessellations, Mm -hmm. which are described as? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. They are repeating designs that interlock with one another, leave no space between one another, Mm -hmm. and that when you fit them together, they fully cover a plane, which is harder 
to do than you would think. Yeah, like if you've ever seen the Escher uh, fish mm-hmm. um, sort of tessellation. The white fish and the black fish kind of working in one another. Yeah, that's a perfect example. And, yep. and he would do this a lot later on. If you've ever played Cubert, <laughs> yeah. that's those cubes are tessellations. Sure. A, a certain kind. Yeah. But uh, he got really into this, even though it wasn't like right away that he started doing these things. That sort of came a little bit later. Mm-hmm. But what he did do was started drawing the Italian countryside mm-hmm. because he loved it. Loved it. I mean, like he he went to, to Italy and was like, this is my home. Yeah. And he, he was quoted at one point in time as saying like he never wanted to become an Italian among Italians. Yeah. He liked being a stranger. Um, but he loved Italy. He yeah, which just, is an interesting thing to say. I'm not exactly sure what it means. I think what he was saying was he's he he likes being a visitor to Italy yeah. rather than there's a certain amount of responsibility that comes with being one of us. You know okay. what I mean? Sure. Whereas if you can be like that guy over there who will accept him, we're not going to throw rocks at him every time we see him or anything like that, <laughs> and we'll take his money and you know maybe even say hi to him or whatever. Right. But we'll leave him alone. We won't include him in our expectations of what it means to be a local. Gotcha. That's what I think he was after. And clearly, I can identify with that. Uh, well, that kind of came through in his work too because if you'll notice, uh, even in these – um, before he started doing the like trippy uh, three-dimensional hands drawing hands and stuff when he was doing countrysides. Mm-hmm. He didn't do a lot of people, didn't do a lot of faces. People were very much in the background and nondescript. Uh, but even when you look at these, when you say Italian still lifes of countrysides, mm-hmm. what came to mind for me were these beautiful, lush, colorful recreations of a countryside. Nope. Nope. When you look at these, they still look very much like in the M.C. Escher style that we all know. Yeah, like very clearly. A lot I of love that, them too. They're like, cool. Yeah, they're beautiful. Yeah. They're black and white and then shades of gray, which is all just shading, right? Yeah. Um, but they are beautiful in their way, lovely even. I like this stuff more than the trippy stuff. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I mean, this is something I would put on my wall. You're an art snob. You're like, oh, I only like Escher's <laughs> early Italian landscapes. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! You take that, you save that, was, that trippy stuff for I'm Graham Nash. So, I'm so ashamed. No, I think it's great, Chuck. You you have You're cultivated totally right, yourself. <laughs> uh, but they they are gorgeous. Um, and then in 1923, he met his wife, uh, whose name was Jetta. Jetta Umiker. That's right. Very nice. Thank you. Uh, she was Swiss. I learned from the best. <laughs> they met her in Italy, but she was Swiss. And uh, she went home, and they sent a bunch of love letters. It's a very sweet story. I'm sure an M.C. Escher movie would be pretty cool. I, somebody wrote a script, or they wrote a dissertation about the process of writing a script about <laughs> M.C. Escher. It's from University of Texas. Oh, they yeah? wrote it in 2017. I can't remember the name of it, but just look up. Oh, just some random stuff comes up if you look up Mosquito Boot Print, which will come up later. Oh, right. But if you search that on Google, it brings up – have you ever done that? Have you ever been like, I'm bored. I want to see what weird stuff I can unlock from Google. No. And it takes a certain amount of skill mm-hmm. because Google wants to give you exactly what you're looking for. It doesn't want to give you just randomness. Sure. So you have to trick it. So maybe you'll you'll type in a weird word or the first three letters of a word or something like that. And weird stuff will start to come. Well, if you type in mosquito boot print – Probably only like the first three of them pertain to MC Escher, and the rest are just a random assortment of of links. I remember early in the days of Google, uh, we had a mutual friend who they did this, what I 
thought was a very dumb game <laughs> where they would try and find two words together that they would try and produce the fewest amount of Google results. Uh-huh, yeah. And whoever could put two words together that found the fewest won. Yeah. And I don't know if you remember them doing that. But so I don't, I know, I don't remember who you're talking colossal about. Colossal waste of time. But I remember <laughs> that some guy did like a TED Talk about that. Or oh, really? Like, yeah. Oh, well, maybe I'm the dummy. No, no. No, it was meh. I mean, look at me. I, I do like MC Escher's early work. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's awesome. I mean, what taste. Yeah. You know? So he meets and gets married. Uh, she returns to Italy and ma- they marry in 1924. Do you mean Jetta Umiker? That's right. Uh, she would become Jetta Escher. Jetta Umiker Escher. And they had a son named Giorgio. Uh, later had sons Arthur and Jan. And uh, they were still just sort of traveling, and his dad was, even though he was married, his dad was still footing the bill. It, Escher's dad, M.C. Escher's father. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, which I was thinking about it. I was like, gosh, you know, how Get do you a like, benefactor. wake up every day and look your, at yourself in the mirror? <laughs> but if you're— if Look you're, in the mirror sphere. <laughs> <laughs> right. How do you, and then how do you draw it? Yeah. So amazingly. Um, the, uh, the, the father, Escher's father, though— and like, what better way to spend your money than to just be like, this is what you want to do with your life, son? You want to pursue art and live in beautiful Italy? Then like, here, this is what I want for you. I mean, that's like— If that's how it went the, down, that's awesome. That's the pinnacle of what a, a parent can do for their child in, in a lot of ways. No, totally. I you know, agree. It's not like, hey, why don't you go, you know, take up heroin and here's a bunch right. of money to, for you to like <laughs> lay around in Ibiza. True. I want to know more. I'm not. I hope I'm not coming across as cynical, but I wonder if some of this was, like, he'll come around, if I, you know, to architecture or whatever. Right. You kept waiting for the part where his father yeah. cuts him off. I, I was. His father apparently <laughs> wouldn't like that. All right. I know how you Good feel. I'm not sure. trying to talk you into my way of thinking. I'm no, just saying, like, I had. <laughs> I started out thinking the same way you did, and then something happened. I was like, oh, it was actually really neat of his dad. It was. It all seems above board. Yeah. So World War II has a profound effect on Escher and his work. Uh, in 1935, he learned that they were uh, making his nine-year-old son, Giorgio, mm-hmm. march in fascist youth parades. And he said, pack your bags. We're going to Switzerland. That is the appropriate response to that news. Yeah. We're getting out of here, marching for Mussolini. Give Have you seen break. Jojo Rabbit yet? No. Is it good? It's is great. it as good as it looks? It's great. Oh, I can't wait. It's great. Everything about it is great. It. Do I need to see it in theater? It doesn't seem like one I have to see in the no, theater. No, I mean, you know, it's always fun to laugh with a big group of people, although sure. by now it's probably thinned out. Yeah. Uh, and I was laughing a lot and people weren't laughing. Oh, I like that. Kind of one of those deals. Yeah. I mean, it's a movie about a kid having Hitler as an imaginary friend, so. Don't tell me that. Well, I didn't know that. I, no, I had no idea. Hitler's on the poster. I know, but I didn't know he was an imaginary friend. Oh, get out of my brain. Sorry. That really doesn't spoil anything. Okay. It's, it's like, Don't tell me anything That's not else. some big reveal. Um, so they go to Switzerland. All apologies. It's all right. I'll it's really slide. not a big deal. As long as it's not a big spoiler. No, 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 no. Of course not. Okay. Um, they go to Switzerland, and he, even though he did not like the mountains, he didn't no. like the snow, did not like cold weather. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they moved to Belgium. After a couple of years. Which is just beautiful compared to Switzerland. <laughs> Belgium's nice. Sure. Uh, in the nineteen in May of nineteen forty though, the Nazis invaded Belgium and so they moved to the Netherlands in nineteen forty one. Where the Nazis already were. Yeah. So I guess they, like they were like were, can't occupy it again. Well, and it's home. Right. Uh, and they settled in Barn. 
<laughs> which is about 23 miles southeast of Amsterdam. I don't know if that's how you're supposed to say it. B-A-A-A-A-R-N. Right. <laughs> I like it's it. It's probably Bairn. Oh, yeah. I'll bet you just nailed it. I think so. But Dutch is very strange it is. language. But supposedly, I mean, not strange, but just for my English, dumb English ears. Supposedly, English is the strangest of all. Yeah, I'm sure. It's just a hybrid mongrel language yeah. that doesn't make any sense to anyone who's not a native speaker of it. You know what is an interesting language is Welsh. Because mm-hmm. I'm watching The Crown, and uh, mm-hmm. when Prince Charles starts coming around, mm-hmm. Prince of Wales, yeah. there's people speaking Welsh. And I, I was very ignorant about even knowing that— What it sounds like? What it sounds like, and that it was still spoken, and uh, it was a very odd hybrid, it sounded like, of several different things. It's all old Celtic stuff. Yeah. It's uh, very unusual. Gallic. Gallic. Yeah. I think it's Gallic. That's like Gaelic. the language group. One of the two. Yeah. <laughs> Everything I know about Welsh, I learned from super furry animals. Oh, yeah. Because that guy's Welsh. Man, I saw them blow granddaddy off the stage one time. Oh, you saw him live? Mm-hmm. Oh, I think you told me oh, that. He melted my brain. Yeah, that I'll was bet. so good. I'll bet. So they're traveling around still, uh, <laughs> even though they're settled in Bern. And uh, they go back to Alhambra in Spain, which I don't even think we said what that is. No, it's a it's a 13th century Moorish castle from yeah. when the Moors conquered Spain. It's beautiful. It is very beautiful, and they built it in the Moorish style, and then it was eventually like taken over by the uh, Christian like royalty that that explored the New World and all that stuff. Yeah. But this castle was done in these tiles that are renowned for being some of the most beautiful geometric like uh, Islamic patterns you've ever seen in your life. Yeah. And they got to Escher. He'd seen him before, but it it was, I guess he was like, oh, that's kind of cool. Right. But the second trip <laughs> that he went back with after they moved to, to from Switzerland, I think, to Belgium or maybe to Switzerland, um, that's when he was like, I am obsessed with these now. Yeah. These tessellations. Started drawing them. Jetta did too. It says that they work together. Mm-hmm. So I'm not, I didn't know that she was an artist. Uh, yeah, I didn't either. Uh, but they, uh, World War II comes back around. Well, not comes back around. It never left. Let's be honest. Mm-hmm. But uh, Spain would uh, devolve into civil war, and so this meant that he was kind of stuck in uh, in outside of Amsterdam for a little while longer. Yeah, he wasn't doing as much traveling. No, he was in the Netherlands, and um, he rekindled his friendship with uh, uh, Mosquita, his old mentor. Mm-hmm. Uh, who had stayed in Netherlands this whole time. And Mosquita was Jewish, and he was taken away by the Nazis eventually. He was killed at um, uh, Auschwitz, I believe, with his wife. Terrible. And their son was also killed at another concentration camp by the Nazis. And this really got to Escher. Yeah. Like, this is one of his dear friends, and he had— a work, a sketch of mosquitoes. When he went to his house to visit Mosquita, he found the door was open and they weren't there and they'd clearly been taken by the Nazis. And one of the the pieces of artwork that he gathered together to preserve was a sketch of mosquitoes that had a Nazi boot print on it. And that's what you were referenced earlier yeah. with your Google search. Mosquito boot print. Did you was there a picture of it? No, I couldn't find anything aside from the fact that it was a sketch. Not that it was a sketch of what or anything right. like that, just that there was a sketch of mosquitoes that was that had a boot a bore a boot print and that Escher hang, hung on to this his, his entire life. It was very important to him. And he was not um, uh, a, a very flowery, like, um, 
like passionate man or anything like that. Mm-hmm. I get the impression that he, uh, and this is Escher I'm talking about, that he internalized a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I think that him holding on to that piece of art was probably a, a, a more significant than even it appears on the outside. Yeah, and uh, supposedly um, hid some people from a Jewish family mm-hmm. during the Nazi occupation years. And also during those same years, did not exhibit or release any prints. Wait a minute. I think you just said hid some people from a Jewish family. Or did you say hid some members of a Jewish family? Well, people, members of a Jewish family. But you said from, I think. Yeah. I mean, like, they were from a Jewish family. And oh, oh gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> he didn't hide them from the family. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Don't tell a Jewish family that you're <laughs> hiding over here. No, that would have been weird. Mm-hmm. Uh, so maybe we should take a break now. Oh, I I think it's unraveled. Sort through who the good guys are. Yeah. All right. Okay, Chuck, so World War II kind of comes and goes around Escher despite his best efforts to escape it. Mm -hmm. Um, And it it definitely had a mark on him, but one of the other things that that had a really big mark on him was having to move from Italy. It was like you said, like he was married, had a family, his father was still supporting him, and every spring and summer he would just tour the Italian countryside and visit small quaint towns yeah. and just be inspired to keep making these Italian landscapes. But Ed makes a really great point here that his Italian landscapes are very handsome works of art, mm-hmm. very beautiful. My favorite. Technically proficient. They're Chuck's favorite. <laughs> but you would almost certainly have never seen them in your entire life. No. Were it not for him moving from Italy, mm-hmm. because in doing so, he lost his source of inspiration and was forced to kind of turn inward because he hated what Switzerland looked like. He wasn't apparently very inspired by his home country of the Netherlands. Um, so he had to kind of turn inward into his own imagination and start coming up with new subjects. And in doing that, the true Escher was, was unlocked. Yeah, because early and like a lot of artists early in their career, they they kind of free ranged through different styles, mm-hmm. trying to find their own personal thing. He had a very uh, very colorful clown period. It's very bizarre. <laughs> Doesn't fit with the rest of it. Very John Wayne Gacy, <laughs> right? <laughs> but uh, you can very clearly see if you look at uh, Mosquito's work, the connection and the influence from him. Mm-hmm. Um, although Mosquito did a lot of. Uh, sort of graphic portraits and things like that, mm-hmm. whereas Escher didn't really worry too much about humans and faces. Yeah, yeah. Um, they were they were just kind of like almost afterthoughts. But early on, he did start experimenting with stuff that would later become sort of his hallmark. Uh, when he did do like a, a, a sketch of a building, let's say, mm-hmm. it would be from this really like tall, odd angle looking down on it, mm-hmm. uh, very severe angles and uh, like a... a horizon or trees that sort of go on into infinity, stuff like that, that would become Mm -hmm. uh, very much his style later on. And Ed very astutely points out that there's something about his style that, um, I don't know how dark of a person he was emotionally, but there is something about the severity of these angles and a lot of his work that was just sort of um, uneasy feeling. Right. It, It didn't look like just some beautiful colorful Italian countryside. There was something 
kind of strange and uh, unusual about it. Something about the the contrast of black and white definitely does it too. Yeah. And he was such a master of shading that if something was stark and black and white, I mean, unless it was his earliest work, uh-huh. it was because he wanted it to look that way and to make it stark and kind of unsettling like that. But yeah, there's like a certain amount of dread in a lot of his stuff. Yeah. And it's not something you can easily put your finger on, but it's definitely there. Yeah, like, did you see uh, the mummified priests? Yeah. That was creepy. Mm-hmm. And then one of but his— But isn't it more creepy to actually do that in real life? To mummify priests? Yeah, priest? to stand <laughs> them sure. up like that in these little <laughs> alcoves? Well, yeah, absolutely. Sure. He uh, was just—don't kill the messenger. <laughs> and he would have uh, sometimes skulls. Um, featured in some of his work mm-hmm. and stuff like that, like the one of the eye, mm-hmm. I believe called eye, mm-hmm. right in the middle of the pupil is a skull staring back. Yeah. So he had little touches like that without going full, like, uh, you know, Lovecraftian. Right, or Goya or something like that. No, I don't even know Hieronymus who that is. Bosch. I don't know who that is. Sure you do. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Okay. <laughs> I know those people. Okay. So uh, his, I guess this is where we get to the fact of the show for me. Take it away, Chuck. Because, folks, if you've ever seen an M.C. Escher print mm-hmm. and you thought, man, that guy could sure draw a print, mm-hmm. imagine cutting that out of wood. Yeah. In reverse. In reverse. Because that's what he did. A lot of his stuff were woodcuts. Even harder than that, Chuck, is the lithograph. Yeah. So a woodcut, if you've ever made a, used a stamp or made a potato stamp— <laughs> As you're, a kid. you're basically M.C. Escher. <laughs> well, that's what it is. He's actually carving this stuff into wood mm-hmm. as a negative image because then when you run ink over it and stamp it, you get the positive image. Mm-hmm. And it's just incredible. I mean, it's hard enough to draw and sketch this stuff, right. much less cut it out of wood. Right. So, so just take a step back and think about the Eschers that you've seen before. Imagine that they, have, well, they were originally carved out of wood. Yeah. And now imagine that to get even more detail, and because you can't adjust how much ink a certain part of the woodblock gets, it's all going to get an even layer of ink. So to shade something, you have to do cross hatching, lines, stippling, something yeah. like that. But to get really detailed with shading, you need multiple blocks of the same image mm-hmm. in the exact same size with different parts accentuated. So that you can layer over, you can take the same paper mm-hmm. and layer them on different blocks and line them up so that you have layers to this image. That was the level of the woodcuts this guy was doing. Yeah, like that's sort of like a, a t-shirt hippie. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Screen printing like a four-color shirt. Right. You got to layer, you got to put it on exactly in the in the spot that it needs to go each mm-hmm. time. Right. Drag that ink across. Yeah. So it's not, you know, off by a centimeter. Right. Because it would look bad. So the woodcuts, um, especially as earlier woodcuts, you can tell they are woodcuts. They look like woodcuts. Yeah. Some of them do not. There's some of the Italian countryside um, that just My are just yeah are just astounding. And yeah. when you stop and think about the idea that they, it's not a drawing, that they're woodcuts, multiple Amazing. blocked woodcuts is is pretty astounding. But like I was saying, to me, even. Even more difficult is making the lithograph. Yeah, I I think I talked about this on some other episode. Um, I know I talked about batiking, but I also talked in industrial arts we did uh, offset (laughs) lithography. In that social experiment high school you went to. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Uh, We did offset lithography, which um, 
basically, I mean, that's the process today. I mean, that's how they make newspapers, posters, books, maps, kind of everything is this, with offset lithography. It was in... Do you remember? It was in the um, Etch-A-Sketch episode. Oh. That's what Ohio Art originally did was lithography. Okay. Well, oh, this man, is that's a deep cut. This is pre... Like today, you use like aluminum or some other kind of metal sheet. Right. And these emulsions and chemicals. Uh, back then, uh, it was drawn onto limestone, <laughs> a flat slab of limestone with a grease pencil, mm-hmm. and then use a chemical treatment uh, to uh, on the areas that basically water and ink don't mix. It's right. sort of all built on that principle. Right. So the areas where you have written in grease uh, do not hold that ink. Mm-hmm. Or is it the other way around? No, I think they don't hold the ink. Yeah. Again, what you're doing is creating a negative image, just like the woodcut, essentially. Right. So you've got this... Um, attraction and repulsion interplay between ink, water, and grease. Right. And uh, when you put it all together on limestone, it makes these extremely subtle gradients of shading um, that are kind of like a hallmark of some of Escher's more um, well-known works. Yeah. The hands drawing hands, right? Yeah. That was a lithograph. He made that with limestone and grease pen and mm-hmm. ink and um, did it in reverse, too, because just like with the woodblock, you have to create the negative of it Yeah, because the you want the positive image on the paper. You have a very special brain if, this is, if you can work this stuff out as an artist. Yes. You know, it's uh, not saying that any kind of artist is any better or worse or smarter than the next, mm-hmm. but... Your brain just has to be wired a little bit differently to think in negatives like that. Like a mathematician, basically. Yeah. Your brain has to be set up that way. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but lithography is difficult, very labor-intensive. Mm-hmm. Uh, so later on, he would hire a, a lithographer to actually create his prints after he's sketched and drawn this stuff out. Smart move. And he would destroy the limestone. Well, he wouldn't destroy it. He would scrape it clean so he could reuse it. Right. So that's the reason, like, if you want to buy an original M.C. Escher, good luck. Well, there's there's no such thing. There's original prints that he made. Right. Uh, and apparently— But you're he, not going to get your hands on one of those limestones. No, but there are a couple of those left over, but he said that he wanted them, I think, canceled is what they call it in his will. Right. Where they intentionally damage it mm-hmm. so that even if you got a hold of one of these things and you were like, I'm going to print me a brand new Escher, uh-huh. um, there'd be like the— like the the negative image of Snagglepuss like comes through <laughs> and like the the hand drawing hands picture. Uh, and he did not do many original prints from those original woodcuts and lithographs either. I think he only did ten right. of Still Life with uh, Spherical Mirror. Mm-hmm. And so anything, obviously, anything you buy in a Spencer Gifts <laughs> is going to be a print anyway. What? <laughs> They told me it was an original. You mean Bikini Lady on Corvette? (laughs) (laughs) You could probably get the original of that at Spencer's. You probably could, the original negative. Um, (laughs) Bikini Lady on Corvette. Oh, man. Remember those? Garfield with Lamborghini. (laughs) uh, These lithographs, he would also layer those just like he did with the woodcuts, Mm -hmm. creating uh, multiple plates to layer on top of one another for shading and toning and stuff like that. Right. Just amazing. Yeah. I mean, I did it to make a monkey's T-shirt. I forgot you used to screen print, too. So did I. Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, the monkey's T-shirt was screen printing. I think a – I can't remember what I did for a lithograph. I think something to make a notepad that said, like, 
my name and something else. Oh, that's right. So you you screen printed in industrial arts. Yes. Okay. Like you were you ever employed gainfully as a screen? Oh no. Uh, oh no. Did okay. you do that? Yeah. No, I mean I would have loved to. It. I wasn't good enough. It's oh, it's not hard. Yeah, but I mean, you would draw the stuff, or you would. Oh just... no, 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 no. <laughs> I would like burn the screens and everything, and drag the ink through. And no, you did I that for for a job. Sure. Well, like high school? No, this is college. Early, it was college. What kind of dough do you make doing that? Uh, Jack. Yeah, but it's fun. It's cool work. You know, you just listen Get to paid music in and beer and a few bucks. Pretty much. <laughs> Hang out with some cool dudes and, you know, that's Yeah, yeah, I got gotcha. you. Yeah. It's no a good, good early college <laughs> job, you know what I mean? I, I think it'd be cool. And I mean, there's a, a very cool T-shirt, local T-shirt shop here that every time I go over there, because mm-hmm. that's where our friend, uh, the patchmaker, uh, Katie Culp works. Or at least she used to. I think she's got her own space now. Oh, cool. But she shared a space with T-shirt dudes. Mm-hmm. And anytime I'm in there, it's just a good vibe. You know what I mean? It really is. <laughs> Yeah. There are a lot worse places to spend your time yep. than a T-shirt shop. Yeah. So, uh, oh, another thing uh, we should point out is that he did do color occasionally, but color was a whole different. You had to do a separate stone for each color. Right. So that's why a lot of his stuff ended up in black and white. Right. Aside from the fact that he liked it as well. Yeah, he seemed to be very pleased with black and white in general. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not saying he was lazy. <laughs> no. But let's take a step back here for a second and, and examine the idea that you thought M.C. Escher was a pretty amazing artist when you just imagined that he was sitting in his studio drawing all of this stuff with a pencil. Yeah. Now, really, let it sink in that he carved these things in reverse out of wood. Or limestone. Or limestone. Yeah. And then used these crazy techniques to make these extraordinarily detailed, incredibly precise and technical works of art. It's amazing. It really is amazing. Truly astounding. Uh, and like you said, there are a few of those stones and wood blocks uh, that are owned by the M.C. Escher Foundation. Snaggle puss on every single one of them. And apparently uh, they, will, they will display them occasionally uh, along with his works. Right, which I imagine seeing that and then looking at the work of art and then going back and looking at that limestone yeah. and then looking at the work of art, it really kind of sinks in like, oh my. Yeah, I'd love to see an exhibition of his stuff. Me too. They've picked up in recent years. Have they? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems like he's being more appreciated uh, as a truly great artist in less yes. college dorm wall material. Yep. In uh, 2011, the record for highest overall attendance in the world out of all the museums in the world that year was at the Centro Cultural Banco de Brazil, which uh, held their magical World of Escher exhibit. Oh, wow. 570,000 visitors about 10,000 a day. Holy cow. Yep. So if you think lithography and woodcutting sounds difficult, we'll talk a minute about mezzotint. Uh, that is sort of like woodcutting, except you're using a sheet of copper <laughs> that starts out as a rough surface <laughs> and then you use these little tools to smooth out things that are going to be the image, applying that ink and then wiping it off. Right. So the places you smooth out are... Don't the, have ink. The ones that are going to be white on the paper or blank right. on the paper, right? Um, it's the rough edges that hold the ink. So you cover the whole thing with ink, wipe it down. The smooth starts, parts come clean. Mm-hmm. The rough stuff um, has the ink. And you can use this like this is... This isn't like, oh, look, I made an X. Right. <laughs> this is like incredibly fine... Um, stippling yeah. is possible with these copper plates and all this and a mezzotint. And the eye 
that you were talking about, mm-hmm. the one with the skull. If you go back and look at that, uh, that was a mezzotint. Yeah, so it was dewdrop. Yeah. Uh, very detailed cupped leaf uh, showing a single drop of dew inside it with all kinds of cool reflections. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Escher called this the black art. <laughs> uh, he only made eight of these because it is a real undertaking. And uh, I think he is just... He, he did a handful of them mm-hmm. and then moved on to the far easier woodcutting. Right, <laughs> right. He's like, oh, I came back, baby. <laughs> All right, well, we'll take a break, and then we'll come back and pick up uh, with his life story again, which is, I believe we left off in what, end of World War II? Sounds right. All right. Okay, World War II is over. Uh, M.C. Escher was, like a lot of people, very rattled by that experience mm-hmm. in Europe. Mm-hmm. And uh, at this point, he still is not a super famous artist making tons of money. No, but he's more famous than, than this makes him out to be. Like he, yeah. He's, he's got some renown in the Netherlands. There's Certain some circles. exhibits, yeah. Um, but he's not... Anywhere, anywhere, even approaching how he is today or how he has been the last few decades since about like the late 60s. Yeah, college dorms have not yet started putting his stuff everywhere. No, but the people who who most appreciate what he's doing are scientists and mathematicians who are like, this is astounding. This guy is taking what we write out as formulas and turning them into art and making them precise. Yeah. Like you could describe this work of art as a formula. That's that is what M. C. Escher was able to do. He was able to take math and translate it into a visual art. Yeah, and uh, you know, remember what you said earlier. This is where we are in his life, where he is um, he is not in the Italian countryside. He's been ripped from its bodice. So his muse is gone, and he is now looking inward for his inspiration in his own um, unique brain. He's being forced into his own bodice, face first. <laughs> uh, this is where he starts with these tessellations more elaborate geometric shapes. He's doing uh, the lizards and the birds and the insects as tessellations. Mm-hmm. Uh, really, really cool stuff. Um, his brother said, hey, dude, you know what you should do is go talk to a crystallographer. <laughs> He's like, if you want to talk detailed shapes yeah. and math. Yeah. Uh, and he does so, and that taught him a lot. And then he learned about the 17, uh, 17 wallpaper groups, Yeah. which is so dense that uh, I, you know, how much do we even want to talk about it? Well, the the we'll just sum it up. The seventeen wallpaper groups basically is a mathematical concept that says every geometric pattern, two dimensional geometric mm-hmm. pattern, falls into one of seventeen categories. There's only yeah. seventeen, and they're called kind of half jokingly the wallpaper groups because wallpaper has geometric patterns on right. it usually, right? Um, Escher couldn't understand it mathematically. Yeah, it was proved out twice independently. The, that there are 17 wallpapers. Yeah, groups. the mathematical proof. One of the things that's interesting, Chuck, is the Alhambra apparently is the only place in the world that contains all 17 oh, geometric wallpaper patterns. Within its walls? Uh-huh. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So, of course, this would appeal to Escher, but he didn't understand. He couldn't sit down and explain, like we can't, mm-hmm. what the 17 wallpaper groups are or what they mean mathematically. Right. But he understood them intuitively. And as he became friends with mathematicians, uh, at, you know, about mid-career, um, 
he was apparently kind of amused to find like, you know, these guys spend all this time writing this stuff out in these formulas and I just know it. It was almost like I was born knowing it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess he was real cocky. Yeah. He wasn't really, though. I'm just kidding. And I didn't get the idea either that he was like, take your math and shove it. <laughs> he was just a little more amused that, like, you've got these mathematical proofs and that, uh, like, I'm drawing this stuff from my creative brain. On limestone. <laughs> yeah, on limestone. Mm -hmm. Cutting it out of wood. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think he appreciated the way they coalesced. Mm -hmm. But uh, And he was very, like you said, most of his friends were mathematicians, I think, later in life. Uh, who did he? Who, the he Penroses? Friended? Yeah, Roger and Lionel Penrose. Mm -hmm. which I love how it's described here. Father and son mathematician team. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know those. They wore matching <laughs> dolphin shorts. Oh, man. It's part of their uniform. I wish people still wore those. Yeah. You did you ever wear those? No, they were a little before my time. Well, they were for joggers and runners. Yeah. And I didn't Ho start that until like 2011. <laughs> And Hooters, I forgot about that. Yeah, that is what Hooters waitresses yeah, those wore, orange huh? dolphin shorts with uh, Remember, like bronze pantyhose. There, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and then chunky white socks. Yeah, and it was re a very, Reebok high tops. It was bizarre. It's an interesting look. Somebody put that together, and not a woman. Um, do you remember <laughs> there, was a, uh, there was a Hooters airline? What? Yeah. Wow, that kind of rings a bell. Yeah. That was very short-lived, I imagine. I believe so. It was pretty short-lived. Interesting. I guess, yeah. So you would get asked, like, what kind of drink and what style of chicken wing do you want I guess, on every I bet flight? they did serve chicken wings on those <laughs> Of things. course. But can you imagine being on an airplane being forced to smell chicken wings the whole time if you didn't like it? Uh, that's like every flight I ever take. <laughs> it's true. There's somebody with some stinky food. You know, if I sit next to somebody on the plane and I'm going to eat, I ask them if it's okay if I eat first. Like if you bring food on? Mm -hmm. Yep. I don't bring food onto a flight. Sometimes, dude, you just have to. Yeah. It's a long flight and sure, I'm not, they I'm run not. out of turkey wraps like in the first <laughs> half a second. So you just pull out your uh, what? My Kung Pao. Out of your pocket? You had just in case they're out of turkey wraps? Yeah. <laughs> not even in a container. It's just in my pocket. Oh, goodness. So uh, I thought this part was sort of amusing um, how orderly he always was with his art. Mm -hmm. And he he tried to get into chaos a bit. In uh, this one work, contrast, parentheses, order and chaos, parentheses, mm -hmm. wherein he went and uh, dug up a bunch of trash and said, I will, I will draw chaos. And it ended up being, if you go and look at it, there's like a broken bottle, a broken eggshell, mm -hmm. an open sardine tin, a broken clay pipe and some other refuse drawn to like perfect, or I guess woodcutter lithographed with perfect Beautiful precision. Right. That was chaos, <laughs> yeah. his interpretation of it. He just couldn't do it. He was very much preoccupied with chaos. He has a very famous quote, probably his most famous quote, quote, we adore chaos because we love to produce order. And he's mm. like, by we, I mean me. Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> Sounded very much like an I statement. But he was, he was very much into geometry and precision and clean lines and all that. Yeah, and also as his career would uh, progress, this, this, these repeating patterns on a finite space. Um, if you've seen his Circle Limit series, that's mm -hmm. where you'll find the fish or these demons. And they start out with like one in the center 
and then there's a pattern all around, and it, as it gets closer and closer to the edge, they get smaller and smaller and smaller. Right. And you can just sort of imagine that there is no end right. uh, to these shapes. That they're just going infinitely around the sphere. Yeah. Perfectly. But again, you have to stop and remind yourself, this is a two-dimensional image I'm looking at. Right. And then secondly, this is cut out of wood. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, he apparently made a three-dimensional wood carving of his Circle Limit series later on in life, and I'll bet that's spectacular to see, too. He made a what? A three-dimensional wood carving oh, of it. interesting. Basically proving that his his two-dimensional drawing was accurate. Yeah. Because he made it in the three dimensions. That's awesome. Yeah, it's pretty, he was just showing off toward the end there. Uh, I like reptiles. Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, aside from his early countryside work. <laughs> that is far superior. Uh, the tessellation of the lizards and reptiles is really neat. That's the one that has uh, the lizards being uh, like crawling off of the page as a drawn image, mm-hmm. circling around, walking over some books, and then crawling back over onto the page as a drawn image. Yeah. Very neat. It's, uh, it's a lot like the hands drawing or drawing hands one kind of where the hands are yeah. drawing themselves or one another, but they're also three-dimensional too. And that actually kind of jibes with another quote he had um, that I think really sums that style of art up. He said, the flat shape irritates me. I feel as if I were shouting to my figures, you are too fictitious for me. You just lie there static and frozen together. Do something. Come out of there and show me what you are capable of. And he would shout it just like that. And then Jetta would back out of the room slowly. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, dear, here's your tea. Yeah. Uh, and that sort of brings us to with the reptiles, uh, we, we need to talk a little bit about illusion um, because it started sort of early on. He was preoccupied with illusion, whether it was like these lizards coming off the page mm-hmm. or uh, still life in street, which is a tabletop that blends into a street scene. That's a neat one. Yeah, it's really cool. Mm-hmm. I like that one too. Um, or relativity, which I don't know. I mean, is there a most famous maybe hands? It's between hands, self-portrait with sphere, and relativity. Yeah, relativity is the one with the, the staircases. Yeah, and people going up and down stairs that don't go anywhere, but they go everywhere, and they circle back on each other, and it's just an impossible staircase. Actually called Penrose Stairs. Oh, really? Yeah. After the famous father and son math magician yep. team? And <laughs> speaking of the Penroses, they— um, Did I just say math magician? I just invented something. Did, did I, I did. That's amazing. Completely by accident. Um, the Penroses— that would be great. Math magician. Yeah, I bet that's something. Four. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but the Penroses apparently wrote, they saw some of Escher's work, wrote a paper explaining his work about impossible things like impossible stairs, mm-hmm. which came to be called Penrose Stairs. And uh, Escher was either mailed a copy of this or somebody pointed it out to him. So he created something called House of Stairs mm-hmm. or Upstairs, Downstairs, one of the two. And um, sent one of the original prints to the Penroses. So in a way, their correspondence and inspiration for one another was like a set of impossible stairs in real life. Ah, Isn't that interesting? Yeah. And this is, you know, we were talking earlier about how his work somehow felt unsettling. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the subject matter as well, when you think about these, the, the subjects walking in relativity, right. clearly never getting anywhere. Walking downstairs, I'm sideways all of a sudden. I'm walking back into the same staircase I was just on. Right. Like you imagine if these things were to come alive, they would be frustrated, angry people. Right. And as a matter of fact, one of the um, the one that you were just talking about upstairs, downstairs, 
they um, that was supposedly based on some a staircase in his school. Oh, really? Which suddenly says quite a bit about his psychology, don't you think? Well, how so? Uh, well, I mean, like these these students aren't going anywhere. They're not even human. They're oh, centipedes okay. with human faces. Gotcha, gotcha. And they're kind of trapped in this. What you could definitely call like a um, a, a a purposeless existence in this building. Oh. It's kind of a dark building. Interesting. So he does finally achieve really great fame later in his life. Mm-hmm. Uh, like you said, he was holding exhibitions in the Netherlands and a little bit in Europe. Uh, but he did one in Belgium in 1950 that led to uh, an article in the studio, which was an art magazine. And that captured the attention of a journalist mm-hmm. who wrote about him in Time and Life magazines, which definitely propped him up a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, then that led to a larger exhibition at the International Mathematical Congress in 54. Mm-hmm. Uh, flash forward to 66. He was featured in... Um, mathematical games column in Scientific American by Martin Gardner. <laughs> Math magician. <laughs> I, I guarantee you that's a thing. Um, and that increased his, and this was 66, so it was kind of the perfect timing with the hippies and the drugs and the counterculture. Right. And I guess, uh, who was it, Graham Nash? Graham Nash. Mick Jagger sent him a fan letter nice. and made the mistake of calling him by his first name. Oh, really? Cheshire did not appreciate um, Stanley Kubrick tried to recruit him to make oh. 2001 A Space Odyssey, a fourth-dimensional film. Huh. Uh, yeah, there's this interesting article called The Impossible World of M.C. Escher that Stephen Poole wrote in The Guardian that has a lot of that stuff in it. But he was he was kind of like, no, I'm good over here with yeah. my math, mathematician friends. Well, once he was featured in uh, Scientific American, that led to the big daddy of them all. He got featured in Rolling Stone. <laughs> and then after that, it was it was all over. He, he was huge. Yeah. Dorm room huge. Uh, 448 works. Yeah. Uh, then this doesn't count all the sketches and drafts. These are like the actual final works. Right. And like we said earlier, he died in 1972 of cancer at the age of 73. And I tried to find more about his family, but there's not a lot out there. Like his sons and yeah. whether or not his – I mean, I guess his grandkids would – be contemporaries of ours. Yeah, I don't know. Like, he was born in 1899. Well. Great-grandkids, maybe. Yeah, okay. I guess if his kids were born in the 1920s, yeah, contemporaries of our parents, maybe. Sure. The oldsters. Yeah. Boomers. Hey, boomer. Okay, no, not, boomer. Okay, boomer. <laughs> hey, boomer. Um, I so can't even get that right. Th- in that, that Journey to Infinity movie, apparently all three of his children appear in it. Oh, really? So if you want to know more about them, go watch that. I saw uh, one picture of him where he looked a lot like our old uh, colleague John Fuller when John had a beard. Oh, yeah, he did, didn't he? Looked a little bit like him. Yeah. was not expecting that. Yep. So there's M.C. Escher. That's right. Speaking of not expecting that, uh, Bikini Babe on Corvette. Corvette? Sure. And Hooters <laughs> Airline made uh-huh. appearances in the M.C. Escher one. <laughs> I just knew? want to point out. Uh, If you want to know more about any of those things, go on to the internet and start searching. And uh, since I said that, it's time for Listener Mail. Uh, Hey, guys. I've been listening to your show since 2011. uh, I've even seen you on your first amazing show in Chicago and had to wait a whole year to hear that on the podcast. Oh, yeah. Uh, That's how it works. Sure. Sorry. It's not even guaranteed that it's going to be the show you saw. Yeah, a lot of podcasts put out 
just tons and tons of live shows. Uh, we don't do that. No. Yeah, and I honestly think the live shows are a little better in person. I don't think they make, as a fan of other podcasts, I don't think they make for the best just regular content. I think most people think that. But we, we just, so that's why we only put out the one. Right. Uh, so back to the letter. This show is so great, I would even save high interest episodes for my son to listen to over the years. Nice. Uh, you were one of the few people that can keep his attention. I never thought I would write, but as a science teacher, you said something recently that is so true. Some of the best science websites are children's science websites. Man. Or if a definition is too difficult, I always tell people to look up a child's definition for that word. Mm-hmm. Uh, really good tip, guys. Thanks for sharing that. Thanks for all your work. And now I will have to figure out what to do now that I am finally caught up. Keep up the great work. And that is from Jenny with an I. Thanks, Jenny with an I. Hopefully you dot the I with the heart. Maybe with a little reflection on the side of the heart. You remember that one? Mm. Two curved lines top with, uh, topped and, and uh, I guess bottomed with a straight line. I think I know what you're talking about. Here, I'll show you. <laughs> oh, boy. Since we just... Dis- oh. oh, sure. That. Yeah, yeah. It almost looks like a, a bent Roman numeral two. Inside the heart. That's a that's the reflection of light. That's where the light's coming from. It's beautiful. Thank that's you. That's an Escher reference. I'll treasure that. Uh, well, you're welcome, Chuck. I wasn't going to give it to you, but now I have to. <laughs> Just sign it first. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, you can uh, go on to stuffyoushouldknow.com and look for our social links there. And you can also send us an email like Jenny with an I did. You can send it to stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Listener.